True story, an uh, article came out in Forbes a couple of years ago, and they've now repeated the uh, article each year, and that is that they have done in conjunction with salary.com a survey of moms and American mothers, and, and what would happen if moms were actually paid in the marketplace for all that they do? How much would they make? Forbes magazine with salary.com. And what they did is that they broke down motherly duties into 10 categories. Daycare center operator, CEO, psychologist, cook, housekeeper, laundry machine operator, computer operator, facilities manager, janitor, and van driver. And they took a look at all of these categories and they added up how many hours a week each mom does in all of those industries and what she would be paid for all of her work. And this is what they came up with. This is the 2013 year survey this, this year. The average stay-at-home mom should make an annual salary of $113,568 based on 40-hour work week. Yep. <laughs> but what I loved about it is based on a 40-hour work week with 54 hours of overtime. <laughs> Seriously. Some of you say, well, I'm a working mom. Well, they included you too. The average working mom should make an annual salary in addition to her salary outside the home of $67,436 based on 40 hours of work week and 18 hours of overtime. The article concluded by saying the breadth of mom's responsibilities is beyond what most workers could ever experience day to day. Imagine if you had to attract and retain a candidate to fill this role. Forbes magazine, I thought that deserved a round of applause. That was great. That was a smart man, he just kissed his wife. That, boy, I tell you, you just scored, sir. That was good. In church, no less. All right. Hey, uh, I do have a special Mother's Day message today. I was going to continue in Galatians, and it just hit me. This is Mother's Day, and we really do need to, to, to wrestle with the whole idea of motherhood and moms and women in general. So I, I know that sometimes on Mother's Day, it's very, very sensitive for those of you who are not moms and who wanted to be moms but can't yet or for whatever reason. And you need to know that when we look at motherhood today, we're, we're going to talk about all women. And really, kind of like, we want you to think of your mom. We want you to think of the ladies in your life. We're really going to talk today about relationships and, and bounce off some words of Jesus as he talked about relationships. So I think what we're going to talk about today is relevant for all of us uh, in our lives, for moms, for ladies, and men for us as as well. So with that said, let's bow in prayer and then we're going to dive right in. Father, I thank you for the joy and the grace that you've given us in Christ. As Ephesians 1 says, we've been blessed in the heavenly places with every blessing in Christ. As Peter would say, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness, and I thank you for that, God. I pray today that as we look at some of the words of Jesus, a seemingly biting question that he asked, that, God, you might give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might understand what Jesus was getting at here and is getting at for our lives today. So speak to our hearts and our minds, we pray right now in Christ's name, amen. So as I hinted to in my prayer, one of the things that I love about Jesus is that he asked a lot of questions. 
He did something, quite frankly, a lot of Christians should do more of today. Instead of just speaking in statements, Jesus asked a lot of questions. I did a study of the Gospel of Matthew a few years ago and counted how many questions Jesus asked in just the Gospel of Matthew alone. And Jesus asked more than 80 questions in the Gospel of Matthew. That's three questions per chapter. And so you're saying, what questions did he ask? Well, he asked things like this. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, questions like this, do you believe that I'm able to do what I say? And so on. Jesus was the consummate question asker. Imagine that. The Son of God comes to earth to redeem humankind. And what does he do? He asks questions. And so today, as we celebrate Mother's Day, I thought it would be great to look at a question that Jesus asked that had to do with his own mother. It occurs very early on in his public ministry when Jesus was garnering a following and gathering lots of crowds through his stories and his healings. And at one point, he is teaching in a house in Palestine to standing room only, and someone tells him that his mother and his brothers are outside wanting to speak to him. And keeping consistent with his style, he asks a question. And it's recorded in Matthew chapter 12, verses 48 through 50. So we'll put the scripture up here on the screen. And you can see there that the question Jesus asks right at that point, when they say your mother and your brother's outside, he asks, who is my mother and who are my brothers? To which Jesus himself quickly answers his own question by stretching his arms over his disciples, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's Jesus' answer to his own question. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, you picked this question for Mother's Day? I mean, that's not like the most uplifting Mother's Day question that one could ask, is it? I mean, who is my mother? In which Jesus seemingly here disses his mother by basically saying, you know who my mom is? All you followers here, that's who my mother is. That's what seemingly is going on here. But I think there's more to it than meets the eye. In fact, check this out, folks. I believe that once you wade through what's really going on in these words of Jesus here and what he's getting at, this is actually the greatest gift Jesus could have ever given to his mom. I think this is better than any carnation box of candy or a gift certificate to the spa. I think in the end, Jesus' words here are actually the most powerful and life-giving words, really the gift that we can give to our moms that Jesus gave to his mom that one could give. So what am I talking about? Uh, what's going on here in Jesus' words uh, are really three things. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to share with you the main point in a minute. But before we get to that, I want to share with you first a, 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 a kind of a preliminary thought so that we put into context here all of Jesus' words so we understand the relationship that he indeed did have with his mom. Then I'm going to give you the main point. And then thirdly, I'm going to share with you the powerful potential that these words can have, not just with our relationship with our mom, but for all of our relationships. So first, let's establish one preliminary but very important reality that's going on in and around this very bold, seemingly rude question that Jesus asks, and it's this, and that is that Jesus loved his mother and had a special relationship, I would say a very special relationship with her. 
And that's really important for you and I to understand first and foremost, that everything that came before this event where Jesus says, who is my mother, and everything that happened after this event shows us that Jesus is not somehow trying to insult his mom here. No, all of this is couched in a wonderful relationship that he had with her. So think about the birth narratives. You guys remember the birth narratives in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 where Jesus, or I'm sorry, Mary is told by the angel, as well as by Elizabeth, as well as by Simeon the prophet, that this is a very special baby being born, that this is the baby that's going to redeem Israel. And it says that Mary in Luke 2 treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. It says that she was amazed at the words of who Jesus is and was. She knew that she was bringing a very special baby into this world. She probably didn't fully understand what Son of God meant, what second person of the Trinity was, but she knew that he was a very special baby. And then the next glimpse, glimpse we get of their relationship is in Luke 2, when Jesus is 12 years old. And many of you remember this scene. He gets lost uh, while in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he gets separated from his parents. And they find him later in the Jewish temple teaching the Jewish leaders as well as asking questions once again. And then he asks Mary a question when she gets mad at him. She says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And it says that they were all astonished and they fully didn't understand Jesus. But you got to believe that, that Mary was so concerned about Jesus because this was her son and they were close and, and he was lost. But then she hears that he's a, a special human being. Really, she's going to realize not even a f I mean, fully a human being, but even more than that, God come in the flesh. And then we have this scene before us here where Jesus asks the question, who is my mother? But then after this, we see them at the cross. Whereas many of you know, it's a very endearing time where on the cross, Jesus actually looks at John and Mary and says, the two of you now are going to have to care for each other. We know that after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to Mary and he allowed her to hold him and to, and to touch him, a very tender scene. And so no matter how you slice it, folks, every scene we see, except for maybe this one, but that's why this one has to be couched in these things, shows us that Jesus had a very special relationship with his mom. I mean, one in which he loved her, she loved him. So when he asks this question, who is my mother, we should not jump to conclusions saying that Jesus is somehow being rude to his mom. No, this is couched in a wonderful relationship that we get to see. As many of you know, uh, the Bible contains just a few glimpses of the full reality of Jesus' life. John says there were many, many other things that happened in the life of Jesus that they could not record that could fill libraries. A movie came out a few years ago that some of you saw called The Passion of the Christ, produced by Mel Gibson, and it was a, a very uh, graphic depiction, especially of the crucifixion scene, and many Christians went and saw that movie, and there, certainly there were some good parts about it and maybe not so good parts about it, uh, but it, it was a movie that a lot of people saw. I remember seeing The Passion years ago, and uh, one of the scenes that hit me was a scene that kind of happened very fast that a lot of people didn't maybe grab onto, but I thought it was a very powerful scene of what it must have been like for Mary to have Jesus as a son. And so look up here on the screen. I'm going to show you this two-minute clip and just see if you can feel what it must have been like for Mary to have a, a normal relationship with her son, Jesus.
هاي لمن فهم عاش خارثيه راتي ميكال قايم اثير ده لا راتي ميكال كدنا شو كان اللايا كارسي وان اللايان لا يوبدا تلتين لال من لا 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 Uh, but you know what the reality is, is that there were probably many, many scenes like that in which Jesus had a normal, fun-loving, playful, close, intimate relationship with his mother. But we have every evidence to believe that. Jesus was a carpenter. They lived alone because we don't see anything about Joseph into, uh, after really the birth narratives. So we, the assumption is Joseph died or was not around. And so the reality is, is that it was Mary and Jesus and some brothers, and you have to believe from all the evidence that we see that they were very, very close. And so with this understanding firmly entrenched in our minds, we have to ask this question. If Jesus is not discarding or diminishing his love for his mother or his role as her son in this passage before us, then what is he saying? in these seemingly harsh words of his. What, he, what is he saying that, as I suggested earlier, could possibly be the greatest gift that he could give his mom on Mother's Day? And here it is. Here's what I think Jesus is doing and saying, and you don't want to miss this, and that is that Jesus is aligning our relational priorities because he knows that when they are aligned, it helps all of our relationships work best. I think that's precisely what Jesus is doing here for his disciples, for his family, and by extension, for us. You'll see that as we go along. Uh, to see this, I want you to look more closely with me at the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, verses 48 through 50. And so let me finally read them for you in all of their totality. Look up here on the screen or at your outline or your own Bible. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 48. It says, but he, Jesus, replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Now here it is. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
Now, the key to understanding what Jesus is getting at here is that power-packed phrase in verse 50, really the key phrase, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. This is the key to unlocking what Jesus is getting at here. And to have any idea what Jesus is getting at here, you and I need to ask back in our minds to Jesus, well, what is then the will of the Father, right? If Jesus is saying the key to understanding his teaching here is what is the will of my Father in heaven, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, then the question becomes, well, what is your Father's will? And thankfully, the answer to this is recorded very clearly in another part of the Gospels at another time very early on in Jesus' ministry, and it's found in John chapter 6, verse 40. And so check this out. Look up here on the screen. Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father. Pause right there. Can we all agree that he's about to answer the same question found there in Matthew chapter 12? Exact same phraseology, even in the original Greek, the will of my Father in heaven. He says, for this is the will of my Father. Here it is. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So what is the will of the Father? Simply that anyone who looks upon Jesus, whether back then or even now, and believes in Jesus will have eternal life, which is simply life forever with God, beginning now and extending all the way into eternity. So I love it. When people ask me all the time, what's God's will for my life? There's actually two answers to this question a general answer, and then what you guys are really getting at, a more specific answer. And what I mean by that is that you ask the question, what is God's will for my life? And you mean, what job should I have? What spouse should I marry? Uh, what should I do with my money? What should I do with this big decision? How do I deal with my children? You're asking all those questions. But God comes along and he says, I actually have a bigger picture, more general will for your life that will actually make all the other things fall into place, and that is that you walk with me, that you come to believe in me through faith in my son Jesus Christ, and then journey with me all through your life, living a godly life that will take you all the way into eternity. And so please see, folks, what Jesus is getting at in his question-answer interaction with his mother and brothers here, he's simply saying that though natural, hereditary, earthly relationships are good and wonderful, and even worth celebrating on days like anniversaries, birthdays, and even Mother's Day, there's a whole nother, another level of relationship, however, that begins with God and then extends into other relationships, hopefully mothers, brothers, and sisters, in which you share life now on a spiritual level, on an eternal level, mediated by the Holy Spirit for anybody who believes in Jesus Christ. And further, Jesus is telling us here that this new way of relating by faith in Jesus, now don't miss this, is top priority. It's the first thing that you were made for. It's a relational priority, and everything else, as good as it might be, is designed to take second place status compared to the first place status of knowing God and having him on the throne of your life. That's why Jesus is saying, who are my brothers and my sister and my mothers? Anyone who does the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father? To follow Jesus and believe in him. And once you establish that, everything else, he says, takes on new meaning. 
And so this is why I say, in Jesus' mind, he could think of no better gift to give his mother and his brothers than to remind them. Or maybe even more to the point, to reveal to them for the first time that they were created for a much higher purpose and plan that they were focusing on at that moment. You see, they were thinking very human at that time, right? Jesus is teaching, he's healing, there's large crowds, they don't get it. So they use their family pull to say your mother and your brothers are outside, they want to talk to you. And Jesus says, you're focusing on the wrong stuff. The stuff that I'm trying to focus people on, the stuff that I'm trying to pry their fingers off of and get them to attach to is God and a relationship with him in which that takes primacy in one's life. And so he's trying to help Mary and the brothers and the disciples all understand this and invite them into what they were originally made for, and that's a relationship with God. That's what Jesus is doing here. I like other great reformer, John Calvin, five, six hundred years ago, when trying to see this passage through the eyes of Mary, says it when comment, 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 commenting on this passage. And so look up here on the screen as I read this quote to you. See if you can't pick up this idea of first things when it comes to what Jesus is trying to communicate to Mary and the crowds here, and by extension us. Look what Calvin says. He says, undoubtedly, what Mary supposed to be her highest honor was far inferior to the other blessings she had received. For it was of vastly greater importance to be regenerated by the Spirit of God than to conceive Christ in her womb, to have Christ living spiritually within her than to hold him as a baby. He says, in a word, the highest happiness and glory of the Holy Virgin consisted in her being a member of the Son, so that the Heavenly Father reckoned her in the number of new creatures in Christ. So what is the purpose of Jesus' barb-like question here? It's simply to understand relational priorities. First things first, he says. When God is at the center of your life, when you believe in his son Jesus and follow him, now you're off to the races when it comes to relating to your mothers and your brothers and your sisters and everybody else this side of heaven. That's the priority God has for us. You know, you guys have heard me over the years use that phrase, first things, quite often. It's actually not my phrase. About 60 years ago, back in the 1950s, a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis was one of the more poignant Christian writers of the last couple of generations. And in one of his essays, he talked about what he called first things and second things. And it was a brilliant little kind of depiction of life where he simply set out that life is filled with a lot of good second-place realities. Like what? Well, your job, your family, your hobbies, your retirement, your money, your ambitions, your purposes, your likes, your dislikes. Those are all second-place things, Lewis argued. They're good things. They're wonderful things. They're things that make our life fulfilled. But in the grand scheme of things, Lewis said they are second-place things. Because you see, there's only one first-place reality, and that is God and our relationship with God. And Lewis said that once you understand that, that first things comprise your relationship with God and that everything else falls into second thing category, you're now starting to understand what the scriptures and the spiritual life are all about. And after establishing this thought, Lewis then noticed, noted two very critical things about this distinction. Now, you're not going to want to miss this. 
The first thing he noted is that by placing second things in first place in our life and first things in second place, we end up with the very real risk of forfeiting both. He said most people don't get that. That when they allow second place things to take first place status, and then vice versa, first place to, to take second place status, we end up with the very real risk of losing both first place and second place things. Look at how he says it in an essay from God in the Dock. This is rich stuff. Look up here on the screen. He says, the longer I looked into it, the more I came to suspect that I was perceiving a universal law. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all the power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. He says, of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice was made. He wraps up by saying, apparently the world is made that way. You can't get second things by putting them first. And you can get second things only by putting first things first. And this is exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you as well. But don't seek first the kingdom of God, and you're going to worry about them. You're going to try to cling to them. And in many ways, you're probably going to lose them. And this is what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 12, folks. Don't miss this. He's essentially saying, Mom, I can enjoy you most and you can enjoy me most when we do the Father's will. And what is the Father's will? First things first. When I am on the throne of your life as Son of God, not just your Son, but Son of God, the one who's come to redeem humankind, now we can move on in our relationship. And this is why I say, folks, that once we get Jesus' realignment of our relational priorities with God first and second things in their rightful place, it helps all of our relationships work best, even our wonderful, life-giving relationships with our mom. As many of you know, I became a Christian 32 years ago. As I get older, I'm marking the date every year, and it's becoming meaningful to me. So 32 years ago, I became a Christian. It was March 11th, 1981. I spent the first 17, 18 years of my life doing my own thing and not really having first things at all in first things place. And I got to tell you, my parents were actually very glad when I became a Christian. Even then, at that point, even though neither of my parents were Christian, they, they had seen me become rebellious enough and do my own thing that when I became a Christian, it added some level of responsibility, a little bit of settling down to my life, and they were thankful but what really happened with my mom and I over the next decade was a, a deepening of our relationship. Sometime in the 80, my mom, 80s, my mom became a Christian as well. And as my mom embraced Christ and as I embraced Christ, uh, we found a, a real deepening and a, a close-knit uh, nature that happened to our relationship that has become very meaningful for me now at the age of 49 and my mom almost 80. As many of you know, I fly in to see my parents every quarter since I've been out here in Scottsdale. I just made my 23rd trip to see my parents uh, a couple of weeks ago. I fly in on a Monday morning, and then I, I fly back on a Tuesday afternoon. And I have dinner with both my parents, I have breakfast with dad, and then lunch with mom, and I'm back to the airport. 
And it's a very, very special time uh, with my parents, alone as well as with them together. And one of the things I've noticed with my mom and I is as we now share Christ, our conversation is so rich. We have to be intentional about it, don't get me wrong. If we're not careful, it can all go on to how's your health and, you know, how's dad and what are you doing to the house and what trips you can take this summer and all that, that meaningless stuff, second thing stuff. But when we focus on first things, we have a wonderful rich relationship centered in the Lord. It's also deepened my commitment to my mom. Uh, I don't think my mom would mind me sharing this, but one of the fears that she has as she gets older is that if something happens to dad, she doesn't want to end up in a home. Not that a home is wrong for some people, but for her, that's a, a fear that she has. She doesn't want to end up in a home. And when she told me that a few years ago, I said, you know, Mom, here's my commitment to you. I, I said, if anything happens to Dad, I promise you there is a place in Pete's home for you. I said, <laughs> he's in Grand Rapids. He's got a big house. I said, I will pave the way. No, I didn't. I, I didn't bring my brother Pete into it all. My mom cried when I said to her, literally, I remember the restaurant, I said to her, Mom, if something happens to Dad, it's your choice, but I promise you I'll fly you out to Scottsdale, and you will have a place in our home. And as she was having tears, she said, but you don't have a big enough home. And I said, then we'll buy another home. And, and I said, and, and there'll be a true mother and mother-in-law suite, and, and we will take care of you. I said, that's my commitment to you. You're my mom. Now, again, I know some of you are saying, well, I know non-Christians that would make that same commitment. I agree. But I'll tell you, when Christ entered my life, all that stuff just became a no-brainer. For, for me, when I put Christ on the throne, my commitment now to my family and to my mom, to my dad, my brothers, my sister, my kid, my wife, all of that falls into place in a much more meaningful way. And I believe that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying that when first things first are the reality of your life, when you understand this, you start to relate to people in a much different way. And yet the second thing that Lewis notes about this first place and second place distinction life, now this is going to be the challenge for you and I today, and tell me if this isn't true, is that we human beings have an uncanny ability and tendency to place second place things in first place status and first place things in second place status. And it's not like we do that just once in a while even, right? It's not like, oops, you know, once every quarter we might slip up and God slips into second place status. No, we battle this every day. And the only reason I know it's true for you is that it's true for me, that I have a tendency every day to place God as a second place reality in my life and allow things like the business of the church or a capital campaign or the worries I have for my kids, or the, the duties that I have as a pastor, allow all those things to creep into first place status. And before you know it, my personal relationship with Christ has kind of taken a second place seat to all these first place things. Can you relate to that at all? I sure can. And I'm a pastor. It doesn't help that we live in a world that just highlights second place realities as first place things, right? You're told from every country song you hear to every Oprah episode you watch to every commercial that you see to every New York Times bestseller book that you read that things like money and success, even good things like family and your vocational ambitions, all those things are the things that you should be pining after in life. That's what we're taught. And then you come to church or you read the Bible and you learn that that's not how it is at all that the reality is, is that first place things, God himself 
desire first place status in your life, and everything else has to remain second. And here's what I've noticed, and this might be helpful for you today. God loves you so much. His grace is so strong in your life that He will do anything to get your attention and to get Him as first place in your life. Even what Eugene Peterson calls a severe mercy. There are times that God will allow things to come into your life to wake you up to your need for Him and that He should be first place status in your life. And I'm talking about you as a Christian. I know some of you think, you're thinking, well, you know, before I was saved, I didn't have God at first place status. Now that I'm saved, He's first place just de facto. Not true. It is very possible as a follower of Jesus to slip into what the Bible calls carnal Christian mode, to allow second place things to take first place status, and it happens all the time, and God who loves you is going to bring things your way when you're not seeing it to cause Him to be bumped back into first place status. As many of you guys know, I love, I love cars. They're, they're second place reality in my life. Can I declare that? Cars, second place. They're not first, but I do like them. And so I watch a lot of shows on velocity and speed television and all that. I go to the Barrett-Jackson, and I, and I personally hand-wax my car. Whenever I go to Danny's and I allow them to even touch my vehicle, and they say, you know, do you want to wax? I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You're 18. You're not touching my car. And so I'm the only one who waxes my car. And one of the waxes that I use, this is not a commercial, it's just true, is Meguiar's. It's kind of the, the name in car wax for those of you who are car guys. McGuire's is owned by a guy named Barry McGuire. We have a picture here of him. And Barry McGuire is the host of one of the longest standing car shows out there today called Car Crazy. And the title fits the show. You don't have to watch the show. Just know this. This guy is car crazy. He goes all over the world, and he finds people that love cars, and he just interviews them. And he looks at their cars, and it's a half-an-hour show that's just kind of like interviews people who are nuts on cars. And he himself is nuts on cars. But Barry McGuire is also a Christian. At age 12, he's now 70-some-odd years old. At age 12, Barry accepted Christ in an evangelical church in California. There are some. An evangelical church in California. <laughs> and Barry, I'm not, I'm not going to pick on Grand Rapids today because my sister-in-law is here today. So we won't pick on Grand Rapids. We'll pick on California. He accepted Christ in an evangelical church in, in, in California, and that changed his life forever. He's built his company as a Christian company. Uh, his kids walk with the Lord. His wife obviously knows the Lord. I mean, he's a Christian man. He also loves cars. Four years ago, Barry was in Australia and New Zealand doing his car crazy stuff, and he got a very rare virus that almost killed him. He got back here to the States, and it was a viral pneumonia that most people will never get, but for him, he got it, and it started to shut down all of his organs. And it was so serious, he was in the hospital for two weeks, and they had to put him in a medically induced coma just to save his life. They thought so much that he was going to die, and this is a true story, that his producer of his show, a gal by the name of Leslie Kennedy, actually wrote his obituary when he was in intensive care. So you know you're in trouble when one of your coworkers is writing your obituary for you before you're even dead. The family sent out emails saying, pray for Barry because he's on his deathbed. And so everybody prayed, and he did recover from this virus. Uh, he got better and better, and after two weeks, he was out of the hospital. But it was a very, very touch-and-go situation. Barry writes in an article that this experience he describes in hindsight as horribly wonderful. You say, how could it be wonderful? Because, you see, when he was in the hospital there, going in and then out, 
and then in again, and then out again. Uh, God was saying something to him, speaking to him through that whole experience. Listen to what he says in his own words. He says, every day of my life, I thank God for my health, those basic things that he has given me. This experience, however, has taken me to a whole nother level. I have heard God say to me, I want you to have a higher priority on me. And then people would ask him, well, Barry, what does that higher priority mean? He says, I don't know. That's between me and God. But things are going to be different from this point on. He says, and I quote, I'm staying with McGuire's. I'll still be doing shows. But God has made it very clear to me, very clear, that all of this is secondary. Those are his words. He says, it doesn't mean that I have to leave all of this. It's more about prioritizing. It's changing my heart and mind. Where are your values? I think God wants to use us, but he wants the whole heart, not just a part of it. This was four years ago. See, this is a guy who's been walking with Christ for 60 years, who built his business uh, upon Christian principles, and God is taking him to a whole new level. I met with a guy the other day who was chaplain in the army for years, just a wonderful, wonderful man. And he got diagnosed with a very rare cancer about five years ago, and the doctors gave him about six months to live. He did some treatment, but more so prayed, and five years later, he was sitting at Mimi's talking to me about his life. He said the day he got diagnosed with cancer, he's again a chaplain, he's a pastor, he says, Jamie, that day I went from trusting to resting. He says, all of my life I've trusted God and I've trusted Christ, but I've never really rested in him. I've never put my full weight upon him, my, my very life completely in his hands. He says, now I've done that. He says, what a place to be. You see, that's what Jesus is getting at here. If you can get to the point where you can say, who is my mother? Who is my brothers? Who is my sisters? Those who do the will of God, those who have so put God first, now take on a whole new light in my relational base because God is on the throne. Now you're starting to get what Jesus is talking about. Because you see, here is the potential reality or the powerful potential, and this is my wrap-up thought that you and I have today from these words, and this will change Mother's Day for all of you. And that is that we now have, stemming from this centrality of Christ, a new way of relating is before us. And that's the powerful potential if you follow Jesus' words here. He says there in verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father is my brother and my sister and my mother. So what you simply need to see here as we wrap up is that what Jesus is saying is that when we do His will, when God is first, we now share a very special and intimate relationship with Him that now colors every relationship we have. You see, this is why I say, this is a great gift that Jesus gave to Mary. Don't miss this, folks. I know it's somewhat confusing, but it's very real. Jesus, in a sense, is saying to Mary this, you can now know me, your son, as Savior and God by having first things first. And you can also know that you got lots of other people in your life that might not be biologically connected with you, but that now through Christ are going to become your brothers and your sisters as well, which proved true for Mary when John started to take care of her after Jesus' death. He's basically saying that the gift we have in Christ is the gift of each other and that that spiritual tie can be stronger than any other human tie that we might have. And that doesn't diminish motherhood. No, please see, guys, it adds to it. 
It infuses motherhood and the relationship that you have with your mother now in a way in which it's ignited by the Holy Spirit and ignited by Christ himself. And so today is Mother's Day, and here's what I want you to do. When you talk to your mom today, either in person or on the phone, or if your mom has already passed on, when you talk to the other women in your life, I want you to give them the gift of loving them with a heart that is committed to first things. A heart that's committed to first things for them, and a heart that stems from you being centered on first things. With God and Christ fully and firmly on the throne. Don't tell them about this sermon or try to explain the passage, Who is my mother? You'll mess it up and it'll backfire on you. (laughs) Just love her and care for her from a place within you in which Christ dwells and rules, and then watch what happens. Happy Mother's Day. Women, we love you. We care for you. More importantly, God loves you. And we honor you and esteem you for the godly women that you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words of Jesus here that though seemingly confusing at first, once we wade through what he's saying here, we get it. We get that life is about first things and that everything else is second. We get the will of the Father, uh, which is to look upon the Son and believe in him and thus experience eternal life. And so, Father, I pray that as each of us ponder those things in our own hearts for our own lives, that, God, you would help us to center our lives upon you and the first thing relationship with you and then allow everything else to flow from that. Lord, may we relate to people in a new way, a Christ-centered way that will revolutionize our lives and theirs, and especially the women in our lives. So thank you for our time here today, Father. Uh, May these ladies feel blessed. May they know that you love them, and we do too. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And the whole church says together, amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you guys later.